Will you please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, James chapter 1. The guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way down the aisles, get their attention. If you'd like a copy of the Scriptures that is marked to that passage so you can follow along as we continue our series in the book of James. The title of the series is on the screen, Real Faith. That's because the theme of these five chapters is what genuine, authentic belief in God's Word, the truths that we profess to believe, we actually believe if evidenced by the things that James tells us in these five chapters. Most of us think of religion this way. Religion is the stuff that we do in order to obtain God's favor. So we go to church, for example, because that's what God wants, and if we do it, He'll be pleased with us is what we think. And that's evidenced in the uh, etymology, the origin of the word religion. It comes from a Latin word, ligere. It means to tie or to bind. And so we get our word ligament from it. It connects things. And the idea then is that religion connects us to God. And so the religious ceremonies and the days and the rituals are the things that we do to bind us, relate us to God. These religious things we do are often thought of as an obligation. And in fact, obligation has that same root, ligere, uh, in it as well. In fact, some religions will designate what are called holy days of obligation. Days that you're required to go to church, perform certain rituals, And so they are, in effect, religious laws, rules you keep in order to have a relationship with God. And that way of thinking about religion is used in the book of James. Take a look at the end of chapter 1 and verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, He deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. And then it goes on to say in the next verse, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So if we really have a relationship with God, it is to be much deeper than just doing the right stuff is what James is telling us. He tells us that it involves the way we talk, and it involves our compassion for others, and it involves our staying away from worldly values. And so he expands in the chapters that follow. Speech is going to be dealt with through chapter 3, verses one through 12. And the idea of compassion is dealt with, as we're going to see in chapter 2, worldliness in chapter 4. None of these things gives a relationship with God. But hear this, you do not have a relationship with God unless these and other evidences of a transformed life are true of you. You don't have real faith, authentic faith, genuine faith, unless one keeps a tight rein on his tongue, 
unless one has compassion for others, unless one marches to the beat of a different drummer than that of the world, that he has an entirely radically different value system from that of the, the world system. So what then is the relationship between what I am and what I do? What is the relationship between, that I have with God and the things I do because of that relationship? Well, religion, this term that I defined earlier about binding us, relating us to God, is called that because most people believe that our relationship with God is based upon observing certain rules. But the Bible says this. We maintain that a man or woman is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Now, I'm going to define, explain what that is. But the Bible is saying here that what we normally think of as religion, these external rituals and ceremonies, that if we do them, we please God and we have a relationship with Him. God doesn't see it that way. James says it's much deeper than that. It involves the way you talk. It involves your heart of compassion. It involves your relationship to the value system of the world. And then God tells us very clearly that we have a relationship with God, that we are justified by faith, apart from observing the law, apart from all of the ceremonies and all of the stuff that are involved in the law that God gave. So let's think about that together. When it says we maintain that a man or woman is justified by faith, that word justified means declared right. Declared to be right. Declared to be okay in the sight of God, by God the judge. And it's saying here that that declaration, that we are right, that we are okay, is by faith. And it's apart from the elaborate and exhaustive law that God gave in the first part of your Bible. So to be justified means to be declared right by God the judge. And it's by faith not based upon the law, says Romans 3.28. And when it says it is by faith, I remind you yet again that faith in your New Testament is the same word for belief or believing. So you might say there, we maintain that a man or woman is declared right by God by believing apart from observing the law. Now what is this law that doesn't get the job done? What is this law that does not allow us to be declared right, okay, by God the judge. It is none other than the law that was given by God to his servant Moses. Most of you are familiar with the top ten, the Ten Commandments. We normally think of that as the law. Certainly that is the, the central portion of the law. But you have the first five books of your Bible are called the books of Moses or the books of the law. There are 613 commands, actually, in the law. And so when it says, apart from observing the law, it is saying, apart from the entire elaborate system, that none of that can serve to make one right before God the judge. And it's not just the law that cannot do that. The law cannot cause us to be declared righteous, okay, 
by God, says Romans 3.28, but one might say, okay, the law can't do that. The law failed. But now we've got a new set of rules that are better than the law. And so you have to obey this set of rules in order for you to be recommended to God, for you to be right with God. But that's excluded in Scripture as well. It's not just the law that can't get that done. It is any list of rules. Any works that we do will not suffice for us to be declared righteous by God. And so the Bible says, faith, believing, is credited as righteousness. Now notice, apart from works. It's not just apart from observing the law. It's apart from works in general. It's apart from any effort, anything that you seek to do, religious or otherwise, that would recommend you to God and seek His favor. And so that is why the Bible says famously, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so no one from any era, from the first part of your Bible, what we call the Old Testament, into the New Testament, into 2012 and beyond, no one will stand before God and say, I kept the law, or I kept any particular list of rules. God excludes all of that. The law works in general as the means by which we have a relationship with God, are justified, declared right before Him. Now, because that is the natural bent of mankind, that being that we think we can do stuff to please God. And because we think that, we develop religions that are based upon lists of rules and ceremonies whereby we do that. That has gone on for millennia. And in the middle of the second millennium B.C., in the 1500s, there were a number of people who had finally had it with that form of religion. And they started something called, some of you know your history, the Protestant Reformation. Protestant protest. Protesting against the elaborate rules and ceremonies, extra-biblical, outside of the gospel, that one had to keep in order to be right with God. So, Protestant, protesting. Reformation, protest for the purpose of reforming. Let's make this right. Let's bring this in line with what the gospel says, what the Bible tells us. And the Protestant Reformation could really be summarized this way. We are saved, that is, justified, declared right before God, by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone, and we get that message from the Scriptures alone. And so that was, those were the watchwords of the Reformation. These Latin terms, sola gratia and sola fide and sola Christus and sola scriptura, sola alone. And so that's what the Bible teaches about how we have a relationship with God, declared right before Him. And that's all good. Except when you look at James chapter 2 and verse 24. 
So far, you guys are tracking with me, I think. All right, I'm good with that. Can't be by the law. Can't be by works. It's by faith, apart from any of that stuff. Faith alone. Chapter 2, verse 24. You see that a person is justified by what he does (laughs) and not by faith alone. Well, we're shot now. That was all good until you read the rest of the story. Until you read a verse like that. And not by faith alone. So I have no idea how you harmonize those. Can somebody come up here and help me with that? No, we will, we will do that. But you can see, can you not, the dilemma. The Bible has said very clearly in numerous places, it's not by observing the law, it's not by works in general. It's excluded every competitor to faith. And thus, you can rightly say it's going to be by faith alone and not by works, says Ephesians 2. And yet James comes in James 2 and says a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. So what's going on? Well, the explanation begins in verse 14 of chapter 2, where the question is asked, What good is it, brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith, can such belief save him? And the anticipated answer is no. Faith like that cannot save, cannot justify, rescue, deliver anybody. And so the question is, which is it? Are we justified, saved by faith alone, Or is it faith and works? And we're going to look at that together. But let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of your grace. We thank you that we are the glad recipients of that grace in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we have before us some passages that we need to harmonize. We ask for your help to clear our minds, open our hearts, and help us to see that indeed the gospel is good news because you have done what we could not do for ourselves. And as a result, help us to leave this place more joyful because of the gospel of your grace and more committed to living out the implications of that grace. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have an outline for you inserted in your program. And the very first point I have there is a declaration that we are indeed saved by faith alone. But how do we harmonize what we've seen from passages in Romans and Ephesians and then what James is saying at the end of James chapter 2, that one is not justified uh, simply by faith, not justified by faith alone, but by what he does. Well, here's how. Paul who wrote the passages to which I alluded earlier, Romans and Ephesians, is addressing a different question than James is addressing. They are addressing two different questions. And understanding the question that they're answering is extremely important, vital to understanding how to harmonize these. The question that Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 4 and in Ephesians chapter 2 is how is a person justified, declared right before God? How does that happen? 
And in answer to that question, his answer is an unequivocal by believing who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So the question is, how is one justified before God? And the answer is, by faith, by believing alone. And Paul is very clear about that. But then James is answering now a different question. James understands that, as Paul has declared, we are justified by believing alone. But his question then is, what kind of belief, what kind of faith? results in that declaration by God. And it is not simply a mental assent to the facts of the gospel. Yes, there was a man named Jesus who was murdered on a cross. Those are facts, and one can believe those facts and still not have the kind of faith that justifies. And you can see that that's the question that James is addressing in the way it's phrased in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have belief but has no deeds? Can such belief save him? Now notice carefully the word such. Some translations say, can faith save him? Now technically we're not saved by faith, we're saved by faith in Christ. But Can faith save him is actually not what the text says. It's that kind of faith, such faith. It's a particular kind of faith that saves. And this faith that saves, that justifies, is a faith that works. You're not justified or saved by those works. But we express a belief in the person and work of Christ that results in works, And, James insists, must result in works. Else the kind of faith you have is not the kind that saves. So we are indeed saved by faith alone. Paul's addressing the question, how is one justified before God, declared right before God? The answer, faith alone. James is now asking and answering the question, what kind of belief, what kind of faith does that? And the answer is, it's a faith that is followed by works, is accompanied by works, must be accompanied by works, or it is not genuine, authentic, saving faith. So we are saved by faith alone. But James insists, number two in your outline, that we are not saved by a faith that remains alone. And he gives us his illustration Abraham, from the first part of your Bible. Chapter 2 and verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God good. But even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was, now notice, made complete by what he did and the scripture was, now notice, fulfilled, that says. 
Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith that remains alone, you might say. Now, you remember the story of Abraham. God called Abraham out of paganism, a stone worshiper, an idolater. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to use you as my tool of blessing to the entire world. And he says, I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to give you a descendants, a progeny that will outnumber the stars. But Abraham was childless. And God promised him, I'm going to give you a son through your own wife, Sarah. But Abraham was in advanced age. Sarah was of advanced age. And God had not fulfilled that promise. Abraham became impatient. He had a child by his maidservant, Hagar, Ishmael. God told him very clearly, this is not the promised son. I will give you a son from your own wife, Sarah. And in the fullness of time, God did that. They named him Isaac, which means laughter. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. Only God can do this. And God miraculously gives them uh, this, this promised child, Isaac, laughter, while she's 90 years old. And then God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take this promised son, this one that you've waited for for so long, and I want you to take him now, and I want you to take him to the top of Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer him in sacrifice to me. Yeah. I mean, quite apart from all of the waiting and the promises of God that this is the son through whom all nations are going to be blessed, and your descendants will be as the number of the, of the stars. Quite apart from all that, just to say, I want you to sacrifice your son or daughter. And we as parents say, oh my, do I believe? (laughs) Do I believe that God knows what he's doing? Do I believe that God's in control? Do I believe such that I could pass this test that was given to Abraham? Abraham takes his son early in the morning, the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us he, he takes him. He, they, they ride to the base of the mountain. They have some servants there. And he tells the servants to wait here with the, the animals. And he says, because we will, re- we will return. Abraham, had, Abraham knew God was going to fulfill his promise. But God has also told me to do this. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we'll be back. He's going he's to resurrect this child. He's going to do something. And you know the story. God provided a substitute for Isaac. They did return. Abraham did pass the test. Now, for purposes of harmonizing, how are we justified before God and the role of faith, believing, and then the works that follow? Here's what's important to understand. When James chapter 2 and verse 23 quotes, notice verse 23, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a quotation. You see the quotation marks? It's a quote from the book of Genesis where this whole story of God calling Abraham and then instructing him to offer Isaac. It's a quote from there and it's a quote from in particular Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Now, here's why that's important. 
Genesis 15, Abraham places faith in what God says. And because he believed, it was counted, imputed, credited to him as righteousness. He was declared right. But then, later, God tests him. And there are to be these inevitable works now that flow from this transformed person who has been declared right by God. And God tests him. And that happens in Genesis chapter 22. And when we are told then in James chapter 2 that God justifies, verse 24, justifies a person, and in the illustration Abraham, by what he does, in the case of Abraham, by what he did, it's a declaration seven chapters after the original justification because he believed. So, Genesis 15, Abraham believes God. It's credited to him as righteousness. God declares him right. But then in chapter 22, he tests that. Abraham passed this test, and God gives a subsequent reaffirmation of the justification of this man. He's justified, and because he's justified, he will inevitably have works that flow. Those are demonstrated, and God declares him a subsequent time. Right. Now, you say, whoa, that's scary. I mean, I'm declared, but that's sort of the initial declaration when I got saved, that was kind of a probationary one. Could it be revoked? And the Bible is very clear that once we are re- declared righteous before God, that yes, it will be made complete. Yes, that, that declaration will be fulfilled as it was in the life of Abraham by works that evidence and flow from it. But the Bible is, is very clear that that declaration, that initial declaration, lasts forever. You see that throughout Scripture, but none more clearly than Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Now notice this. Those he did four things to. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. Now here's what you've got to get. There are not some people that he predestined, but he didn't justify. There are not some people that he predestined and didn't call. There are not some people that are justified, but weren't called. Every one of those four things are speaking of the same group of people. Those four things all happen to the same group of people. Every one of those four things happens to that same group of people. So the people that he predestined, he did call. And the people that he calls, he does absolutely justify, declare right. And the people that he declares right will be, unbroken chain, glorified. Now in between that justified and glorified, there are works that flow inevitably, from the changed life of the one who has been declared right by God, having expressed belief, faith in who he is and what he has done. So you could put it this way. We trust, and then those who trust, believe, have faith, 
obey. We trust and we obey. And Abraham trusted God, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then, in an ongoing way, subsequent to that, he obeyed. And so, I've shown you this formula in the past. But some say this. That faith plus works results in justification. That would be pretty much everybody who denies the gospel of grace, which is pretty much everybody. That is religion. Religion says that. Faith plus works, you're justified, which means you can never know this side of heaven if you're justified because you've got to wait to see if you did the works to see if you're ultimately going to be justified. So no one could have assurance of salvation or possess and know that they possess eternal life in a scheme like that. But that's the scheme of most religion, including most religion that goes by the name Christian. Yes, we believe in faith to justify. We just don't believe in faith alone. It's faith plus works results in your justification. Say they. They accuse us of believing this faith minus works equals justification. That is, you guys just think, you just believe, you tip your hat to Jesus. Yes, there was a guy named Jesus. Yes, he died on the cross. I believe that. I assent to that. And then I don't need to do any works that follow. That would be completely unbiblical. Certainly, James would take great issue with that, would he not? Those works inevitably follow in the life of the one who has been justified. So it is not faith minus works equals justification. But it is this. The biblical formula is this, faith, believing, results in two things. Justification and then the works that follow justification. We are saved by faith alone. But what kind of faith? It is a faith that works. That's the question that James is answering, asking and answering in chapter 2. And then there's a final question that I want us to consider. We're saved by faith alone. The Bible declares that. But James asks the question and answers it. What kind of faith? It's a faith that works. But here's the other question. What kind of works? So what kind of works that? should follow in the life of one who belongs to Jesus, one who has believed and been declared right with God. What kind of works follow? And thirdly, in your outline, I say this. We who are saved work so that no one is alone. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that. So that no one is alone. We're going to see that the kind of works that flow from the life of the one who has been justified are works of love on behalf of others so that no one is alone. Let me explain. Salvation in Scripture, a relationship with God, being rescued from sin, being saved, delivered from sin, salvation in Scripture reverses the effects of sin. 
It reverses the effects of sin. You all know that, right? When you come to God by believing who Jesus is and what he did, it reverses the penalty of sin. You are no longer liable to the eternal penalty of sin because Jesus has paid the price, taken the penalty on our behalf. But the Bible teaches as well that the power of sin is then broken. And so although this side of heaven we still struggle with the remaining vestiges of sin, its power, its mastery over us has been broken, the Bible teaches. And so in salvation, the effects of sin are being reversed. One of those effects is first is alienation. Alienation of two types. Alienation from God and alienation from others. And the one flows from the other. Sin has separated us, alienated us from God. Our hearts, because of sin, the hearts of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and our hearts in following them as their children, our hearts are captured so easily by someone or something other than God. And so our hearts have to be changed. A change, a transformation has to occur from the inside out. And God takes those that He justifies, declares right. He gives His Holy Spirit, the book of Romans teaches, so that He begins a work of transformation in them, chasing those wandering hearts, drawing them back day by day to Himself. Salvation reverses the effects of sin. One of those, the chief of those, is alienation and alienation from God. The Bible says, the heart is deceitful above all else. And beyond cure, who can understand it? And so we need a heart transplant, a change from the inside out. But God gives that so that our hearts that were separated and alienated from God and idolatrous are now drawn to God. He reverses the effects of sin. Alienation from God, but also alienation from others. You remember that God said, In creation, chapter 2, second chapter of the Bible, it is not good for man to be alone. God made humanity as social creatures. He designed it that way. Be fruitful and multiply. But the effect of sin is first to alienate us from God and then to alienate us from one another. The very next chapter, chapter 3, the entrance of sin into God's otherwise good world results in Adam and Eve, our first parents, being alienated, separated at odds with one another. And that alienation continues then, such that we are separated as humanity by external circumstances. We divide ourselves up into categories by things like wealth or race or position. That's why chapter 2 and verse 1 that we saw last week says as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1 of chapter 2, do not show favoritism. And do you remember what we saw last week? Favoritism, that word translated favoritism, means literally to receive a face, to look on the outside, the external, one's race, one's position, and then treat one accordingly, particularly treat one in a demeaning fashion because of 
their external circumstance. But in Christ, that's reversed. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And God has created His new community called the church, where people from all backgrounds stand before God as equal in position before Him and are treated as such within the community of faith. And so that is why, as James deals with these works that should inevitably follow, must inevitably follow, justification by faith, the kinds of works that he deals with are works of love shown to others. Take a look at chapter 1 again and verse 27. Religion God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, look after orphans and widows. Or then look into chapter 2 and verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring, fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Notice the illustration. It is one who is in difficult circumstances, poor circumstances. And the test of faith is, how do you treat that person? Do you show compassion to the orphan and the widow, to the poor person? But it goes on. Verse 8, chapter 2, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, and what is that royal law? He has it for you there. Love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Over and over and over in Scripture, the example of faith that is being lived out is works of love on behalf of others. Christians are to be characterized by love of others and not, friends, in word only. We all agree with that. By this shall all men know you're my followers, says Jesus, if you love one another. Jesus says, love your enemies even. We all know that. We all acknowledge that. We all agree with that. But too often we can agree with it in word only. Christians are characterized by love of others, but not in word only. They're motivated by the needs of others. And so they are people who see a need And their instinctive reaction is to immediately try to meet that need. So what motivates Michael Carlisle, our missionary to Cambodia, to give up his career to serve people in rice paddies in Cambodia? Because he's a Christian who loves people and he sees they need Jesus. What motivates our missionaries to go to an unpredictable future in a Muslim country? What motivates the Pitsleys as a young family to take their little children to East Africa and Kenya? Because it's a beautiful country? I don't think so. Because it's safe? I don't think so. It's because they see people who they love who need Jesus. And they understand 
I have, we have what you need. And therefore, we will do what's necessary to supply it. But friends, it costs something to do that. And if you value your stuff, if you value your reputation, if you value your health, friends, if you value even your own life over spreading the fame of Jesus, none of that will make any sense to you. If you value it, it costs more than you're willing to part with. But these people do it because the lives of those people are worth more to them than their own. You see, the reason we can do what James is saying, the reason Abraham can do what God said to do, is because, hear this, they have no fear of losing. You remember the clothing line back in the 90s, no fear? No fear. There's nothing to lose for the Christian. Nothing. There's everything to be gained for the Christian. Now, I've given you these examples of missionaries in Kenya and Cambodia and Muslim countries. You're like, dude, you're outside of my league. Those are the Green Beret Christian. God calls some of those people to special stuff. I hate it when people say that, so don't say that around me. But really, God doesn't have these two class. Listen, God has called every one of us to lay it on the line for Jesus. Every one of us. We do it in different ways in different places. But the sacrifice, and for us, if we, if we don't see that we're losing, if we understand we're not losing anything, it's not really a sacrifice at all, we joyfully lay it on the line for Jesus, wherever we are. So I'm going to mention some people. They'll be mad at me because they serve in anonymity and they don't do it for the praise of people. But I want to give you examples, not just of missionaries, of just real-life people in our congregation. You know, what motivates Ed Martin? To give his retirement to leading our building project. I cannot believe all the stuff that guy does. And that building would not move forward except God placed Ed in this place at this time to carry out that thing. But why? What motivates Sharon to assist him in that and to encourage him in it? What motivates Rich Carrico to serve as our deacon chairman and our treasurer and a men's ministry coordinator, all the while holding down his full-time job, raising his son who is still at home? Or Ken Rapp to come early on Sunday for 10 solid years to set this place up so that people can hear about Jesus and learn of Him? Aaron Kinder, every week, coming early, staying late, Cliff and Carrie Banks with little ones doing the same thing. Carrie running our Wednesday ministry while, while working outside the home. Jim Pantelli using his talents to design stuff for us and, and to come early and to set things up in the, in the hallways for us. Ken and Beth McGill at their, at their age of 45. <laughs> but coming, making coffee every week, teaching our children. Bev is, Bev is almost never in this room, not because she wouldn't like to be, but because they're little children who need her care. I could go on and on. The needs, friends, are endless, but hear this, and you know it. 
The needs are endless and so are our excuses. We don't reach out as we ought because we're afraid to step out. And I ask you, what are you afraid of? What do you got to lose as a child of God? What keeps you from reaching out? You know what? That no fear thing should be no fear but one fear. Fear God alone. And that word fear in the Bible means revere. Revere God alone. If I revere God alone, and I don't revere my possessions, and I don't revere my position, now I am free to lay it on the line, as James describes, as Abraham did. Jim Elliott, you guys have heard this, but I'm going to close with his quote. The missionary who lost his life, along with that of his friends, in Ecuador, said he is no fool to give what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. That's real faith. That's really believing. And that's what Christians do. Now, most of us have become Christians. We've had that initial justification where God has declared us right because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And now the question is how we live that out, how we pass the test of what we really care about, what we love and what we value. And God is calling us to lay it on the line, all of us, not just the Green Berets and the missionary fields. Some of you have never had that initial justification. You've never come to God through Christ. Here's how that happens. You recognize that you need it because you can't earn it, because you can't do anything for it. You recognize that you're a sinner separated from God, but recognize Jesus did what you can't. He paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. He lived the perfect life that we were called to live. And you repent of your sin then. I'm going to follow God now with my life. I'm going to give my life to Him. You receive Jesus Christ into your life by praying when we bow in just a moment to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is my Savior. He died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me, and I want to follow you with my, with my life. Let's bow together. Oh, Father, this is convicting for me for us as your people because Lord we value so many things above you in our sin our ongoing struggle with sin but we thank you for allowing us to be confronted with that in these moments for me to be confronted with that in my own life help us to see that in you in the Lord Jesus we have all that we need and much much more you have lavished your grace upon us you have withheld no good thing And whatever you call us to, you will supply amply more, infinitely more than what we think we have given up. Lord, I thank you for the dear servants that you have brought to this place to carry out your work and spread your faith. I thank you for those who recognize that there is no greater joy than giving themselves for your glory recognizing that what they've been given has come from your hand and is to be used for your glory. I thank you for them. I ask your blessing on them as they continue to serve you until you call them home or until you return. 
Lord, I pray for any who have come to you in faith. They've been initially justified, but they are struggling with giving up and what they might lose. Help them to see that they gain everything as they give everything for you. And Lord, I pray for anyone who came into this room without a relationship with the true and living God through Jesus Christ, that right now you're moving on their hearts to draw them to yourself so that they begin this marvelous journey of serving you and the joy that comes with it. Lord, glorify yourself through our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.